0: normally do is we turn to one verse, walk through that verse, um, and often if you see me without notes it's because my outline is the verse uh, and and so that's how I normally do it. But today we're going to have a longer lead-in and then two short verses to address a topic, a subject that I think uh, is important for us to visit. Uh, So I want to ask you to pray with me as we um, jump in. Father, we're thankful to you for Uh, this place, for this people, and we pray that we would uh, do things rightly here at CFC. We pray that you would give us what we need to uh, have the right focus, and we ask that you would uh, allow us to leave here energized and enthused about what your word says uh, and how we're supposed to respond to it. We thank you for it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. If you need your Bibles, uh, you will eventually need it. Uh, we're going to get to it, uh, but lift your hands up and we'll bring you one. Um, but I, I want to address the vision for CFC, and I, I don't think I maybe have ever really preached the sermon on the vision for CFC um, And I think even I've evolved over time. Some of you remember when I first got here, I got here in 07, and I can't remember when exactly we took that retreat and we got away and we talked about let's let's hammer out a vision here. And I think 2007, 2008, Lucas, was maybe a little bit more, uh, what what, what shall I say without throwing myself under the bus too hard? Uh, I didn't quite see... Uh, I couldn't quite discern the difference between some of the reading material that was in front of me, uh, like, like today's version of myself, um, and we all grow and we all mature. I don't think we did anything wrong. I just think uh, we can sift through certain things a little bit better when we're picking books off the shelf that purport to tell us how to do church. So When we talk about the plan at CFC, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to come up with a vision statement, a purpose statement, a mission statement. Many people say those are three different things. You need a vision statement, you need a purpose statement, you need a mission statement, you need values, you can't have too many values. Your values have to be bite-sized, chewable, short sentences. They have to be unique values that maybe not everyone has. Um, And A lot of this stuff, I think, comes out of a faulty assumption about what ministry is supposed to be about. And so it's not wrong to have purpose statements and mission statements. Uh, but I think some of the frustration that I've experienced is if a church has a really good purpose statement, it sounds kind of generic. If it's solid and it's biblical, if it sounds really specific and fresh and new, it's probably not quite as biblical. It's a particular angle, something specific. It's something that we're going to do that every other church doesn't do. Why are you doing something that other good churches aren't doing? And so these are kind of uh, the things that bring this to attention. Uh, And even at the school where I teach, uh, uh, some of this stuff is, uh, some of the classes, some of the curriculum has been affected by what we can call the church growth movement. So capital C, capital G, capital M, right? We're not talking about church growth in general. We all pray that churches will grow. We all pray that the kingdom of God will expand, right? But the church growth movement is a particular kind of thinking about how churches can grow, right? Numerically, numerical church growth. How do we do that? Book after book after book, article after article after article, uh, uh, explaining what a pastor, what elders, what a church should do uh, to get the ball moving in terms of growing the church numerically. What I want to do is is kind of clear the deck, I think, of some problematic assumptions, and that doesn't mean that I think you assume it. I just want you to be aware of, of some of these things, because as we continue to gain visitors, as we continue to gain guests, more often than not, they come from churches that buy into this stuff, And then when they come here, it's like, well, what are you guys doing with this stuff? Why don't you guys have this stuff? Why aren't you guys talking about these things? And then their assumption is, maybe it's a dead church. Oh, that's why it's so small. It's so small because they're not doing this stuff. Um, So I, I do want us to be aware of what some of these assumptions are. After kind of clearing the deck of some of these problematic assumptions and why they're problematic, then we'll get into a couple of short... Uh, scripture passages uh, to, to allow scripture to, to reshape and fashion what it means to have a vision for a church. Here's three assumptions that I think are problematic. The first one is, if you build it, they will come. Uh, I remember the name of that, Kevin Costner, but it was a field of dreams, right? Um, if you build it, you know, they will come. Uh, if you build the right program, if you build the right building, if you staff the right staff positions, you know, people will come. There's a secret. It's a formula. Do it the right way. Make the right programs and people will flock to the programs. Make sure your programs are better than the programs down the street at the other church. Make sure you have more programs than the other church down the street, you know, uh, and people will come. It's an attractional model, right, that looks to see how to, to see what do people like and create programs that kind of hit that chord of the things that people already like and they'll come to church liking those things and hopefully they'll catch the gospel along the way. You hook them with something else and then eventually they'll get the gospel some other way. The problem with that is, as many have already said, what you win them with is what you win them to. Right, So if you're not winning them with the gospel and you're winning them with something else and hoping that they catch the gospel later, they might catch the gospel later and leave because they never loved the gospel. They never understood the gospel. And the temptation for the church will be to kind of leave off. The the gospel shoe never actually drops because once it drops, they're going to leave. Why? Because they would have never come if you would have led with that. And so... Maybe some of you have the testimony, yeah, I started coming to church because of this really cool program. It was a wine club. You know, we'd go out and do wine tasting and that's why I was interested at first and then eventually I learned the gospel. Maybe that happened and what I want to say is praise God that he uses weird stuff to get people in. I don't think we want to take uh, the cue from that playbook. The second problem is that it's The church growth movement stuff is driven by human strategy. It's essentially you're reading a business book. It's about profit margins. It's consumer-based methods, demographic profiles. If you understand the demographics around you enough, you'll know how to manipulate things at the church enough so that that demographic finds your church attractive. And I've always felt kind of like an oddball. Um where other passers, they can rattle off the percentages, how many minorities, which minorities are here, where they live. This is by zip code. They've got stuff memorized. And I'm like, I don't know. I have the eyeball test, but I don't have the numbers. Um, Maybe I'm just not good at that stuff. But I think the problem is, and I want you to hear me, it's, it's, it's not that it's never helpful to know who's in the neighborhood or what they believe, or what kinds of people are living around the church. We should know our neighbors. But what I'm saying is the church growth movement stuff assumes that if you know that stuff enough, it will increase the attendance in your church. And then the third one is that it's focused on what you can count. How many baptisms? How many people attending? How many visitors did we get today? Uh, How do we raise that number? What's the budget? Everything is quantifiable. You can count it. And I think that's a problem. Of course, we we count attendance here. We just want to know what's going on. Part of it is because we want to know at what point are are we getting too, too cramped in here. But pastors love to get together around their Starbucks coffee and uh, crepes and start talking about what are your numbers, what are your numbers, what are your numbers. Maybe some of you, if you're invited to a church the first time, you just want to know how, how big is it. We want big bigness because we feel like we're a part of something big. We want bigness because we want tons of options. My middle schooler is into this. Do you have a camp for that? My high schooler likes this. Do you have a group for that? My husband would come if you had a group for this. And it's programs. It's like a big mall. There's a group called the American Society of Church Growth. Here's how they define church growth. Church growth is that discipline which investigates the nature, function, and health of Christian churches as they relate to the effective implementation of the Lord's Great Commission to make disciples of all people. In other words, they look at church and they go, how effective are they? at making disciples. It's a spiritual conviction, yet it is practical. And here's the key. Combining the eternal principles of God's Word with the practical insights of social and behavioral sciences. So if you're a pastor of any worth, if you're going to be an effective pastor, you have to know the Bible, be an expert in the Bible, and be an expert in behavioral sciences. And then combine the two and you'll get the effective church. The ineffective pastor is deficient in one of those, most likely the behavioral sciences. Reflecting on this, a famous author, I won't say his name, writing for a very famous uh, church magazine, he's actually saying that you know the church growth movement started out great, but it kind of lost its way because it became to come and see, that big mall thing. Everybody just would build a big mall of ministries and people are going to come. And it wasn't focused enough on going and getting people. Okay, that, that, that might be true. But then I read this line in his critique, and he said, our, our here's what he said, our best hopes, he's saying the, the church growth movement lost its way, but in the beginning it was good because our best hopes were focused on making the church so attractive that even a lost person would want to come inside to discover Jesus. Now, for many believers, that immediately sounds, yes, amen. We want to make church so attractive that even lost people are going to want to come. The problem with that is the the biblical definition of a lost person is someone that doesn't want to come. They're lost by virtue of their rejection of the gospel. And so if you're going to build a church on getting people to come that don't want to come, you have to recast what they're coming to in order for them to want to come to it. So what he's saying is what was great about it was the desire to do church in such a way that people that don't want to be Christian want to come to your church. What does it look like to to create a church that people who don't love God and don't want to be a Christian want to come to it. So I question you know how, how biblical is that? Lost people, lost people might think they're interested, but if they're not being drawn by God, they'll not be interested in a raw gospel that calls them sinners, a raw gospel that condemns them and tells them you are under God's wrath. So I want to find the booming church, the exploding church that is very clear on that point. I'm not saying they don't exist, but the church growth movement believes you don't start with that. Maybe you don't even ever get to it. Because the only option really is to hide the offensive aspects of the gospel so that people aren't offended so they can come. The Bible teaches the gospel is offensive. It's a stumbling block. So, will will people ever come to a church that preaches a raw, true gospel? Yeah, the people that God is drawing to himself, not the people that came because you bombarded them with five waves of mailers. Not the people that come because you offered to give them a raffle on a free iPad. Right? It's not hard to get people in the seats. All you have to do is leave the gospel out. And so what I'm saying is not anti-missional. I think what I'm saying is missional. And the church growth movement has kind of uh, evolved into missional, being missional. <laughs> if you don't have the gospel, you've lost the objective of the mission. And if you've lost the objective of the missional, you're not missional. The church that's clear about the gospel is missional, but you're not missional Your uh, your mission is make the church bigger numerically. That's your mission. Let's grow the size of the parking lot. That's scary. For the church growth movement and for many, what they might call the missional stuff, maybe not all of them, but their objective is basically get as many people as you can in the door or on a list. John twelve thirty two. You don't have to turn. This isn't one of the two verses. But just reminding you, Jesus said, you know, when he's lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. And then John makes a comment. What did Jesus mean when he said, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself? Well, John gives us the kind, and we don't get this very much from gospel authors. They assume you know stuff, but 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 John puts this little parenthetical statement. Hey, what he meant by being lifted up was being put on the cross and lifted up off the earth, hanging up there on the cross. And it's when people look to him hanging on a cross that he will draw people to himself. So does God draw lost people to himself? Yes. Are there seekers out there? There are seekers, people that God is tugging their heartstrings toward himself. But how does God do that? Jesus made it clear. It is not through a program. It is not through percentages. It is not through demographic research. It is by presenting Jesus on a cross, not just a random Jesus. Jesus the good teacher. Jesus the rosy-cheeked child cuddler. There is a dying Jesus that took a death that you deserve. I mean, as soon as you open the book of Acts, you see the first sermons of the church. And what the church growth movement wants to focus on is, look, 3,000 people came. God brings people. It should be massive. What did Peter preach? He said, you killed him. And they were cut to the heart and said, what do we do? And he said, repent. That's what you do. Amazing, three thousand a 3,000-person altar call off a sermon like that. So what does Peter think of our sermons today? Don't forget your free iPad. I think it's dangerous. I think it sets us up for false expectations. It puts tremendous burden on pastors, young pastors coming out of seminary that think they can take a dying church and make it into 500 people. All they needed was some demographic research. The assumption that every church that's small, they're small because they hate evangelism. They're small because they haven't figured out the program approach yet. Maybe they don't want to figure out the program approach yet. And maybe some small churches are small because they're doing the right thing. So... When the cross is presented, the drawing happens. Many Christians would agree, if we're to reach lost people, we should understand how people think, and we should understand the specific challenges to the gospel in a particular area or among a particular people. There are, in different times and in different places, there are specific challenges to the gospel, and we should understand what those challenges are, yes. But that can so easily, just, just slightly turn into something else. If we're to reach lost people, we should understand how they think, and we should understand the specific challenges to the gospel. Agreed. But it turns into something else easily. If we're to reach lost people, we should start with how they think. And then, now that we understand what they think, we're going to dodge their specific challenges to the gospel by de-emphasizing those challenging parts. See? That's how you get people in the door. What is offensive today about the gospel? Now, one generation ago, what was offensive about the gospel was the absolute nature of truth. you got got colleges teaching, teaching all the kids, there is no truth. Your way, my way, the other way, the highway, it doesn't matter. There is no ab- absolute truth. But that's not what millennials are thinking now. If you say there is absolute truth, they're like, yeah, that's cool. What they care about is, are you doing anything? Are you serving homeless people? Are you feeding people? Are you out there being active? So church growth movement is going. They're steering, and now all the church growth movement stuff now is uh, don't uh, don't show up to church. Go be the church this Sunday. What do you mean go be the church this Sunday? What does that mean? How about don't give up meeting together, but instead meet together to encourage one another. But no, let's skip church and let's clean up Bussy Woods for a Sunday. That that's the new missional angle. I don't think it's healthy. I think it's, we're seeing the gospel slip uh, out of churches. So I did this thing where I jumped on Amazon. I do this once in a while and I just put, you know, church growth. I just want to see the books that come up. And like in five seconds, I just found my, the fodder that I needed for this part of the sermon. All right, it's, it's, it's called the church growth flywheel. I don't know what that means. Five practical, here's a subtitle, Five Practical Systems to Drive Growth at Your Church. Okay. I didn't even get to the five, I didn't even get to one. I just read the first few pages. And he puts there right in the front, the author does, a few reasons why this might not be the book for you. Here's one of them. I'll just read it verbatim. If you're looking for theological discussions around church growth, This book will leave you wanting more. I I couldn't imagine leading off a book like that. Hey, if you're interested in theology at all, this is not for you. This is very much not theology. Okay? But he says, in fact, I'm convinced that theological wrangling over this topic isn't what church leaders need to do with their time. What we need instead is more action, not more reflection, to make a difference in our communities. You hear it? You hear it? We're not going to get bogged down in theology. Let's not be talking about Scripture. That's not what our focus should be, is it? I'd love to find the epistle where you found that. I'd love to find a New Testament book that isn't saturated with the importance of doctrine, but instead is saturated with church or community programs and activities. I mean, I never heard of it. It's exactly backwards biblically. I can't find one church growth strategy in the New Testament. I can't find one. What we see, though, over and over and over and over is the need for churches to hold to the confession of the faith, steer away from false teaching, endure even in the midst of a culture that hates the gospel, and then you've got an Amazon best-selling book telling pastors, forget theology. Let's just go do stuff. Why? Well, to drive growth. Wow, we're defining growth a lot differently, I think, at this point. I'll just give you one more and his reasons as to why this may not be the book for you. This one might be a little harder. He says, quote, if you read the scriptures and cannot see, if you read the scriptures and cannot see that the entire book tells one story of a God who is so desperately in love with humanity humanity, that he pursues them relentlessly, then this book will be of no use to you. And my immediate thought was I guess this book is of no use to me because you don't read your Bible. How is God desperate for anything at all if he is a God that needs nothing whatsoever? God isn't going, oh please, please convert. What is that? Now I understand there's an argument between Armenians and so-called Calvinists and free will and all that kind of stuff. But Look, I, I was free will for a long time, hardcore, I would argue. I, I got to Moody and I was arguing everybody, just trying to destroy Calvinism. Even then, and even amongst all my free will friends, we would pray for unbelievers. God, would you rescue my friend? Would you, would you help him, save him, help him turn to you? Why would I pray that if God is like, I don't know, what do you want me to do about it? I'm desperate for him. I'm not saying God doesn't love people. I'm just saying you, you see what he's saying. The Bible is full with one story. There's just one angle to it. God is desperate for humanity. And he wants them to turn. Well, why aren't they turning? Well, you don't have the flywheel. I mean, you're missing the five systems that drive growth. That's what you're missing. Well, no, you're missing theology, as you've admitted. So. Those kinds of things are saturating uh, our church literature. Pastors are taking classes in this stuff and then going to their churches and telling them the way to turn things around, the way to drive growth is to lower the bar on good biblical theology and to raise the bar on human strategy. It's about production. You can produce the effect of gaining people. So they just want you to do enough research, make plans just right, and if you're if you're smart about exercising human leadership skills, then you'll know just how to grow the church. Okay, I want you to turn with me to a passage in Mark four. It's only four verses long. It's punchy, powerful, uh, and not very complicated at all, really. Mark chapter four. Jesus has a series of parables here. And the first parable is about a sower sowing seed, which is the word, and it lands on different kinds of soils. We've, we've actually been in that passage numerous times here. I want you to see the other parable of the sower, which is verses 26 through 29. So I'll read it. Please follow along with me in your Bibles. And he said, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And I want you to catch what it says about what the sower knows or doesn't know. He sleeps and rises, verse 27, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he's like, Yeah, I figured it out. I mean, it says he knows not how. (laughs) This guy can't write a book on growth because he doesn't know how it happens. There isn't a three-step process. He didn't drive the growth. (laughs) He planted and went to sleep. So the first parable that Jesus started out with, that famous parable at the top of chapter 4, Jesus is saying the seed is going to be sown, and there's four different types of soil. Three of the four reject the gospel. Two of those that reject the gospel don't reject it at first, They like it. They show up to church. They're excited. This is a cool group. This is a cool place. I like the concept of God. Ah, but as soon as the rest of the world starts giving them heat about it, they fall off. So then what would you do if you're a disciple? Okay, how do we increase the good soil? How do we get more people to be the good soil? Well, then the next parable should be, well, here's five paradigms for driving growth. But instead, what Jesus says is, you don't. You cannot make one soil a good soil. You can't make a bad soil a good soil. You cannot change people's hearts. You cannot make people love me. Some will, and you won't understand it. Sometimes you're going to meet somebody that is so antagonistic towards God, the last person you ever think would follow God, and then you're talking to someone else, and they seem really interested, and they seem really nice, and that person ends up rejecting the gospel, and the crazy hater of God ends up being an elder of the church in a few years. How does that happen? God, that's how it happens. God, not strategies. And so we're supposed to indiscriminately scatter seed. We're not supposed to do demographic research and find the three people in your life that are most likely to turn. You cannot figure that out. You cannot produce growth in anybody. So who should you witness to? What soil should you scatter seed on? All of it. I love that first parable. He's throwing seed on rocks. There's a path. I mean, another sower would be like, dude, you're throwing seed on place that's never going to catch. I don't care. Birds hang out there. Why are you throwing seeds there? Whatever. It's indiscriminate, right? He's just throwing seed everywhere and anywhere, and he's letting the soil figure it out so we have a little short sort of recap on that parable, a little explanation of a particular part of that parable. And God is, Jesus is emphasizing that the kingdom is going to grow, but you're not going to know how it's happening. Your focus is scattering the seed and then watching it grow. Scatter and sleep, scatter and sleep. That sleeping is trusting that something is happening in that soil. God is going to produce it. Every seed is not going to sprout, but some seed is going to sprout. Which seeds are going to sprout? I don't know. How does it sprout? I have no idea. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus that this Holy Spirit is like the wind. It came, it went. You don't know where it came from, where it's going. The Holy Spirit moves and rebirths people. Not a strategy. And so we cannot manufacture church church growth with human strategy. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever have meetings. We shouldn't plan things. What I'm saying is that we can't think of human strategy as driving church growth because human strategy doesn't produce it. Unless by church growth we mean we need more, more people in seats. Well, yeah, we can do that if that's the bottom line, but it isn't the bottom line. There was a time, maybe some of you remember, there was a time when churches used to talk about soul winning. Maybe that's a familiar phrase to some of you. We haven't heard it in a while, I think. But we we don't win souls. This is why one of our goals we'll talk in a second is gospel explanations. We don't have a goal of soul winning because conversions are not our responsibility. Somebody converting, that's God's responsibility. What's our responsibility? Scatter and sleep. Explain the gospel. Put the gospel there. Plant the seed there. And then trust that God is going to do his thing, his thing that we cannot do. Matthew 9, Luke 10, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So we're supposed to labor, right? We labor in the front end and the back end. We sow, God changes people's hearts, and then we, we we reap it, we collect it. That's great, but it's very passive. You sow seeds, and you collect the baskets of fruit. But how does fruit come from the seed? Well, That's the stuff we don't know. God simply does it. Jesus wants laborers in the harvest, but he's not teaching that what we need is creative, entrepreneurial pastors and leaders in the church that can kind of dream up contemporary ways to accomplish the mission. His emphasis is to to scatter, not to produce the crop. And so you see that there's a process there. The seed grows. It's first uh, the earth produces the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. There is a process of growth there, but it's out of the sower's hands. So Paul confirms this when he tells the Corinthians who were, the Corinthians are very much like Americans. They went to certain conferences because their favorite speakers were at these conferences. Uh, They bought the conference speakers' t shirts, so to speak. They wore the, the Calvin shirts and they drank out of Spurgeon mugs. But what does Paul tell them about that? These people are nothing. I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. We're not anything. I planted, Apollos watered, we did the scattering, we did the planting, the, the, you know, what, what, the, what the seed needs uh, in that beginning stage. But God gave the growth, he tells them. God gave the growth. Worship God. God is the changer of hearts. He's the one that does anything. He's the one that ch- changes a church, changes a heart. He's the one that grows a person, grows a church. He does it. We have an active participation in it. We do things right? But we don't produce change. And what's really difficult is it's hard to quantify change. You'll never hear a church that says, we want 50 better marriages. You know why? Because what's better? How do you, how do you, how do you put a marriage, the health of a marriage on a scale, one to 10? We want to move all our five scale marriages to, the, to eight on the scale. How, how, do, you, how do you do that? without becoming legalistic. Do you pray every morning? Oh, you missed the morning? We're going to bump that down to six. You're not at eight yet, but at least you're not five. right? We just want to quantify stuff to affirm ourselves that we're a successful church because we're counting things. And I don't want us to be that kind of church, counting things just to count. So we can plant, we can water, we trust God for the growth. Let me give a quick, couple quick points of application here before we move to our second passage, which is even more brief than this one. But think about church goals. You may have heard goals like, we're going to triple in attendance by 2025. Uh, we're going to baptize 50 people by this time next year. Or uh, we're going to aim to secure 25 conversions by the end of the year. So the, the problem with those, and I hear them all of the time, the problem with those is, It's assuming that it's assuming human ability where there is none. I can't stand up here and go, hey guys, how about 50 baptisms by the end of the year? And the books will tell you you need big goals, big audacious goals. We're gonna triple our attendance in two years. And I always want to ask why why only triple? You said big, hairy, audacious goal. You said it has to be so big that only God can do it. Well, why are you limiting God to only triple? Why next year? Why not tomorrow? The God that parted seas, the God that that, uh, makes water come out of a rock, the God that makes bread rain, are we serving the same God? He can do anything, but you're still saying you need a year to triple. Why can't next Sunday... Five times the amount of people that normally come are knocking at the door of the church. God can't do it? See, well, I mean, it has to be realistic. Ah, ooh. Realistic according to human endeavor. In other words, you've done the research to see what does social marketing produce. If you get enough click-throughs, what is the result? If you send enough mailers, what is the return? And they'll tell you. I mean, the, the number used to be 1%. I don't know if people really use print mailers as much anymore, but it used to be you will get a 1% return on mailers if you send enough waves in a saturation, you know, one, you know, radius. You'll get a 1% return. So how many people do you want to come to church? A hundred? Well, then math it back backwards, and that's how many mailers you need to send out. But they didn't get the big, hairy, audacious goal because God sent it down to them on a sheet in front of them like Peter on the rooftop. They didn't get it from the Bible. They got it from their behavioral science research. It's not a big, hairy, audacious goal. It's realistic according to human endeavor. That's not audacious. That's just punching numbers. That's just just number crunching. And it's not driven by faith in God. It's driven by faith in man. And so that's a problem. I don't think it's wrong to have goals. We just shouldn't set our sights on things that we don't have control over. So I want to remind you of the three goals. Some of you, maybe this is new to you, but for members, you remember these three goals that we talked about at the last members meeting. Uh, It was referenced earlier in the service today. 50 gospel explanations in a year. Look, we're responsible to explain the gospel. We're not responsible to make people change. I want us as a church to be able to celebrate, hey, guess what? You show up at growth group and you say, guess what? I talked to my neighbor about the Lord. He completely hates me now. But I want us to go, yes, right? We only celebrate if that neighbor shows up and gets baptized. I want to celebrate if the neighbor slams the door in the face, deletes you off of Facebook, starts talking smack about you to other neighbors. Why do I want to celebrate that? I want to celebrate that because you talk to them about the gospel, you knew that was coming, and you shared the gospel anyway. That's a win. So, if we're going to measure anything, let's measure opportunities to share the gospel that we take. We took the opportunity to share the gospel. I want us to get together and say, "Yeah, I almost finished it, and then he cut me off, or whatever. It was an almost explanation. All right, good job, man. You said, you know, but we can celebrate that. And it seems to me that if we can't among us in an entire Year celebrate 50 gospel explanations, whether or not it was any of the other three soils. Uh, then I think, yeah, it's it, we're just not really on mission at all. The other two are each member serving in at least one specific role. Why? Because we read the Bible, God gives people specific spiritual gifts. If somebody is in a church and they're not serving in any way, that's disobedience. And some of that is the church not making available opportunities. Some of that is communication not happening between people in the church and those that are in leadership. Uh, Some of that is people tried serving one way, it didn't quite work, so they they haven't quite rerouted yet. There's all kinds of mix of reasons, but we just want to have a goal that if we look at our members list at least, it's not that non-members can't serve in any way, but we want to at least start with our members and go, are there any that are either mismatched in their roles, or maybe in a place right now where there's not a clear... A clear role, and we want, no, there should be clarity in the role, because God's given you spiritual gifting to be in a role. And the other one is offering CFC courses uh, for training in the Bible, and that'll be relevant in just a moment. But I want, you can turn there, uh, the other verse, really quickly. Matthew 28, a very, obviously, popular passage, quoted all the time, of course, by your church growth uh, gurus, but the Great Commission, Jesus is has resurrected. He's going to ascend. He gives the disciples uh, the mission of the church. And so in, in a very real way, we shouldn't really have to come up with a fancy uh, purpose or vision statement when the Lord has already given it to us in, in Matthew 28. I mean, you can massage the wording or whatever and, I don't know, make it memorable, but this is it. Uh Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven. This is verse 18, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I'm taking this authority and giving it to you so you can go do stuff. What is the stuff he wants us to do? He wants us to make disciples. It it's hard to see it in the English, but if you were reading it in the Greek, the primary verb is make disciples, and then there's three uh, participles. In other words, ways in which you do the verb. So the main verb is make disciples, and you make disciples three ways. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Now maybe it's cumbersome in the English to put it that way, and so it looks a little switched around, but that's how it is. right? Make disciples, going, baptizing, and teaching. And so you see that there's a scattering of a seed initially, and then there's a continual implanting of the seed, a continual implanting of the word so that once somebody is born, They are continued to be nurtured so they can grow up in Christ. God controls the birth, but God also controls the maturation process. So just like I say I can preach the gospel to somebody, but I can't make them buy into the gospel, same thing, I can preach to an immature Christian, I can't make that Christian mature. So that is still under God's total control. But what is under our control? What is, what is it that we are supposed to do? We're supposed to proclaim it. I think that's implied in the going. Because the result of the going is some are going to be baptized. And when people are baptized, that's their entrance. What are you supposed to do with baptized people? You're supposed to teach them. And so teaching has to be at the heart of every church if they're serious about making disciples, if they're serious about knowing what to do about people that have been baptized. There's nothing here about attracting them with programs, getting them to bite, making them feel like church is just like them. There's nothing about providing an experience or having a dialogue instead of a sermon because that's where people are. No, teach them is your job. We at CFC uh, might be a teachy church. I, I don't know what else is supposed to be at the core. I don't know what else is supposed to be at the center except teaching. It's just so replete in Scripture. It's so clear. So some of us are a little bit more nerdy than others. Some of us are more verbal processors than others. I, I, I get it. Uh, but if somebody doesn't like to read and doesn't like to talk and they ask you, how do I grow as a Christian? And you know the answer is read the Bible and pray, but that's reading and talking. So what are you going to do? Change the church, change the church, spiritual disciplines that are prescribed to us in Scripture? I know you hate to read. I'm not asking you to read Herman Melville. Okay, I'm not asking you to read... Uh, an 800-page tome on, on church history. But if, if you're not willing to read the Bible or listen to the audio version of it, you just don't want to access what God has written. I mean, it's, it's, it's mandated. So we don't lower the bar on the gospel. We can't lower the bar on what it means to grow in the gospel. It requires, it requires teaching. There's just nothing here about social activism, or don't get caught up in too much theology. It's about community service. No, it's it's teach them. What does it take to teach people? Yeah, theology. I mean, what are you teaching them? You're teach theology is a word about God. I want to come to church, but I don't want to do theology. That's I want to come to a place that's supposedly about God, but I don't really want to learn about God. I just want to learn about myself and the things that I already committed to. Okay. You can start a club, you can start a cult, it's not a church. So here's some specific ways that we do this. We, the focus of the church, the focus at CFC, shouldn't be on human strategy, but on faithful gospel teaching. So some specific ways we do this, I think you know this already, but I just want to run quickly through and remind maybe some of you that are newer. Uh, the Sunday service is the linchpin in discipleship. The Sunday service is the main huddle. It is the primary getting in the locker room and going, okay, guys, how was the game out there? Which was you throughout the week. How did you grow? How did you run the plays that we talked about? Okay. And so we, we get together, the coach is there, the head coach is there with all the coaching staff, and we're talking to you about play on the field. Okay. You're not a spectator. You put a jersey on, you're a believer, you're a part of this church. We're supposed to be. Uh, proclaiming the gospel out there. We're supposed to be impacting people with the gospel. So if the gospel is the football, how did you run it up the field? How did it go? Well, I dropped the ball here. I did that. We, that kind of thing. And so here's where we talk about the plays. Here's where we talk about uh, what's been handed down. I'm not supposed to be creative up here drawing brand new plays. My role is to go to Scripture and go, what, is the, what are the plays that have been given to us? And let's do that so Sunday service is core to it. If any of you have ever been followed up, hey, we missed you on Sunday. We missed you the past three Sundays. We missed you the past five Sundays. It's not because our numbers are dipping and we're really trying to get to a particular number. We don't have a stated goal of getting to a particular number. The reason why we care is because I don't know how you're going to run the plays if you're not sitting in the locker room with us. That, you're floating back into the stands. We want you on the team. That's why we care. We're not trying to judge you for skipping church. We want you to get what you need to be built up as a disciple. Having a service, a congregational service is not something that was made up you know, in the 1960s. It's, it's a biblical gathering of God's people. They would gather, they would sing, they would have scripture read out loud. So you may notice that there's a little bit of an absence of kind of fluffy things up here. We don't have interpretive dances We don't have somebody come up and juggle. Wow, that was really cool. What are we going to do next year? It's not a talent show up here. Is it wrong to juggle? Is it wrong to have interpretive dances? Is it wrong to play a movie? No, that's just not church. Why? Because the Bible makes it clear what we're supposed to at least do when we gather. And we've got to focus on the Word, the reading of it, and the teaching of it. So that's our focus. Two more really quickly. One is growth groups. Those are like mini huddles, right? Discipleship hubs. That's more like an on-the-field meeting really quick. Uh, If I keep going too far with football, I'm just going to easily display my lack of knowledge of anything. Or discipleship hubs where teaching is pushed into application in in camaraderie. That, That word camaraderie is interesting. It's from an old French word that's from a late Latin word that means chamber. Like people cooped up in a chamber together. Right? They're in a room, a smaller room together, and there's a togetherness of being in something together. And so growth groups is a way where we try to encourage that growth and the movement together that, that we, we need each other in order to grow as disciples. And then thirdly, a one-on-one discipleship, which some of you are doing, uh, and I'm hoping that more of us get into, where uh, one person that maybe is a little bit older in the faith, maybe not even necessarily older, uh, chronologically, but older in the faith, helping someone else who's a little bit newer in the faith, uh, helping them understand things about the Bible and about God and, and how to apply that in their life. So those are the core things. Everything else in a church revolves around that stuff. Everything else in the church supports, directly or indirectly, comes around and supports the teaching-focused ministries because that's what a church is supposed to be about. So whatever your air, so let's say you're on the welcome team. It's not a teaching ministry, but what is your role on the welcome team? Your role on the welcome team is to help people feel welcome to one the, our linchpin huddle, right, where teaching is going to happen. You're helping people access the teaching by by making them feel welcome and helping them helping under, uh, answer their questions as they come here for the first time or second time or whatever. If you're on a setup or teardown team, you might feel like, man, I'm just setting up chairs, I'm just breaking down tables, wiping them down. This, I'm not teaching. Yeah, you're providing it. You're, 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 by your labor, you're providing access to God's Word. You're allowing the scattering to happen by your service by doing something as simple as setting up a chair. It is not unimportant. But the reason why it's important is not because I did something today. It's because you supported the teaching ministry of the church. That's why it's important. If you play an instrument, you're not playing an instrument because you want to stand up here and show people that you can play an instrument. You're playing an instrument because our voices, we're not a professional choir out here. This is the, this is the primary instrument of the church, your voices, our voices, but we're not, we're not pros. Not all of us can read music or read charts, right, so it helps to have an instrument, oh, it's the, the instrument is the audible bouncing ball that helps us sing. And we're singing the things that we're learning. We're singing the things that we believe. We're singing the eternal truths of the faith. And those truths that we sing, those words, those lyrics, that are come from Scripture, they're generated from Scripture, even if it's not verbatim, massage God's truth into our hearts. And so singing is a teaching time. So again, the things that we do, we don't do them because we want people We we need something before the sermon. (laughs) What else are you supposed to do before the sermon? If we're not going to do juggling acts, I guess we sing. No, it's not I guess we sing. Why do they do it in the Bible? Well, it's to teach and admonish one another and build one another up in the faith. You know, I task a family day. We're going to have a booth. Are we having a booth because we just want to have a booth? No, they're giving us the opportunity to present the gospel. And so as you're drawing the henna, I think there's like four or five parts of that henna tattoo. I don't know what the word, you know, that picture that is being drawn on their arm or hand or face or wherever they want it, I guess. You know, you're, as you're putting those pictures together, you're saying this is the fall, why God created you, then the fall, and then what Jesus did to fix it, and then the response that you're supposed to do. And so when they look at the picture, they're reminded of those parts of the gospel. That's, we're not just drawing henna because it's cool right? It's scattering the seed. Will any of them come? Who knows? That's not our job. Our job is scatter the seed. Our job is scatter the seed. So the focus of the church shouldn't be on human strategy. The focus of the church needs to be on faithful gospel teaching. So we focus on these goals, like gospel explanations, go out there, explain the gospel to somebody, and then report it to an elder, a leader, a growth group leader, and say, hey, I I talked to somebody about the gospel. We want to hear that, and we want to celebrate that. If you're confused on what the gospel is, it's Jesus taking what we deserved and doing what we couldn't do. It's Jesus living that perfect life none of us could ever live. And because we didn't do that, we deserve death. Jesus took that death for us. We can't earn it. We can't do what Jesus did. He's not a moral example. He provided the way. He paved the way and conquered death for us, the death that we deserve. He conquered it for us if we respond to him by faith, repenting and going, yeah, I should deserve death, but I trust you to save me from it. Then God is waiting with open arms. He presents Jesus on the cross. You respond in repentance. You're in. It's not magic. It's not abracadabra. It's not say these exact words and you're in. It's repentance and placing your faith in Jesus Christ, sufficient uh, atonement for us. So as we close in a song, I, I just want you to understand that as we continue experiencing God's blessings as a church, as we, right now, we continue to experience uh, People coming and people sticking and and we're growing and these kinds of things. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. And as we offer teaching opportunities like CFC courses, growth groups, things like that, we want you to plug into those. We want you to plug into those because that is how you grow. You grow in the Word. You will not grow siphoned off from the Word. And so that's why we provide those things to you. It's not because Lucas is a nerd, right? It's because we, we just want you to love the Bible. We want you to love the Bible Because it's God's letter to you on what you need to know about Him and how you're to respond to Him. So, as the worship team comes up, I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we pray that as we close in this song, you would remind us of your grace. You would remind us that we uh, can experience freedom in you, uh, no matter how wretched we are, we were. Father, we pray that we would be faithful to continue to grow in that grace. And to communicate that grace to those around us uh, that don't yet know it, that reject it, maybe even that feel like they hate it, you can cut through the hardest of hearts. You can melt the thickest ice around any heart. And so we pray that we would see that happen as we go out there, scatter the seed, and sleep trusting in your work. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.